You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 18th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. I don't know if it's outright lies or he has absolutely no understanding of history. As impeachment looms, we will look at the message President Donald Trump is sending to his political rivals and to the 2020 electorate. My guests Mark Galliotti and Somnath Batabayal will discuss that and the day's other news stories, including the influence of Russia on British politics, the latest unrest in India, plus... From grappling with Brexit in the UK to protesting corruption on the streets of Lebanon, fairness and transparency are worth fighting for, no matter how powerful or intransigent your opponent may seem. Reflections on the unstoppable rise of big tech. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Mark Galliotti, Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and Somnath Batabayal, lecturer at SOAS here in London. We will begin with the impeachment of US President Donald Trump. In particular, let's take a look at the thoughts of the President as expressed in a letter he sent to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the style and content of which will have evoked a nostalgic frisson in journalists of a certain age, who may be able to recall when similar missives arrived in their pigeonholes written in green ink and changing handwriting every paragraph. Uh, Somnath, based on uh, the thoughts of President Trump here, how well is he taking this? Uh, (laughs) Well, it's the most obvious answer. He's not taking it very well. Uh, But the letter itself, as he says, extraordinary six page of vitriol. And and, um, I don't know if it's outright lies or he has absolutely no understanding of history. The Southern Witch Trials, I mean, First, he won't be hanged, whatever happens. You know, uh, the victims of Salem Witch Trials were hanged, pressed. Um, they were the least powerful of all of America. There, there have been it, suggestions that there was a certain lack of due process as well in the well, Salem Witch Trials. Well, 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 in that, there was a lack of evidence, definitely. <laughs> and, 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 and President Trump has been asked repeatedly to come and say his part, which he has actively refused. So, the, I mean, the contradiction in these two cases couldn't be more. I mean, I'm sure he could have found out uh, better cases of uh, judgment and uh, and and um, testimonials gone wrong. Uh, but this is uh, ridiculous. Um, how has he taken it? Not well. Um, <laughs> so that, I guess the answer to that is uh, simply. But you know, we do live in extraordinary times, in the sense that letter is perhaps not necessarily to say this is right and this is wrong, but to send out a message to his supporter base. Re- recently, CNN has just done a poll. Which How says, many of them do you reckon are going to read it? Not many, but they will say that this is. You know, look at how our president is being targeted. 49% of America in, in the CNN poll has said that we don't want this impeachment proceedings, while 46% has been for it. So in the larger scheme of things, his political game, if it is uh, setting himself up for the next elections, which he is, as is Nancy Pelosi's, uh, Pelosi, seems not to have gone completely off track, which an impe- impeachment proceedings 20 years earlier, 10 years earlier would have meant. Uh, Mark, the letter is, all jokes aside, quite mad. Um, (laughs) Is it, do you think, I mean, and again, seriously, all jokes aside, does it strike you as a bit, I don't know, 25th Amendment-y? 
Well, I think Trump has managed to essentially coat himself so thickly in Teflon that almost now, I mean, he, he has become resistant to all these sorts of points. But also, I mean, I think actually going, going back to the earlier point about that he's leaving a message, what I found interesting is in terms of the tone, it starts as if he's desperately trying to go against type and sound faintly statesmanlike, and then very quickly degenerates into the kind of stream of consciousness, bile and vitriol that we have called all come to know and love. And in some ways, I think actually perversely enough, that works better for him. If Trump tries to pretend to be a normal politician, he just looks like a failure. And also nobody buys it because everyone just assumes somebody else wrote it. Exactly. Trump has to be Trump for him to maintain forward momentum. In that, he's, he's like a shark. He has to keep swimming or he drowns. And given that this was so full of bile and therefore so full of implicit threats, I mean, there was an interesting point where he mentioned about um, how inappropriate it is for the legislature to try and basically take the, keep the executive in check, which one it's would have thought was actually its job. Literally but, its yeah. job. <laughs> but actually then sort of flipping it around and saying, what if it was the other way around? There was an element of that kind of lovely Congress you've got here, a shame if it burnt down, <laughs> kind of sideline that is also characteristically Trumpian. Uh, I, I did want to ask each of you uh, if you have any particular favourite presidential or prime ministerial correspondence. I'm going to go ahead and guess neither of you are going to nominate Trump's dispatch to Nancy Pelosi. The, the one I wanted to mention uh, very briefly, just because it just strikes me as the absolute polar opposite of anything Trump is ever likely to write, is the it's the letter Dwight Eisenhower never sent or the speech he never gave after D-Day failed because he wrote two messages to be broadcast or announced after the invasion. The one, of course, which was broadcast was the one uh, declaring that the operation had worked and that letter that Eisenhower wrote was all about we and us. The letter that he wrote in the event of failure was I and me and my, um, which I think demonstrates uh, pretty much the inversion of Trump's approach to leadership. Somnath, do, do you have a, a, a favourite letter from on high? I have several uh, from <laughs> from uh, Nehru. Um, Nehru was a letter writer par excellence. Um, even before he was prime minister, during the time he spent in jail, um, there was this letters he would write to his daughter Indira. And the many of his recollections got together in the book called Discovery of India. Uh, after he was prime minister, the letters he would write to his home minister, whom he did not get along with, who was on the right of the party, are absolutely fantastic. The letters he wrote to Tagore, letters he wrote to Gandhi. So, yes, I mean, I don't think I should be mentioning this in the same breath as Trump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark, you, as I understand it, have a slightly more niche choice. Well, actually, also, I think a, a slightly more appropriate choice from, 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 from the terrible Trump to Ivan the Terrible, czar of all the Russias. 1564, he actually decamped from, from his capital in Moscow to a sort of fortified uh, village and then sent a letter to the boyars, the aristocrats of Russia, at which he accused them of all kinds of things, of embezzlement, but basically of not being nice enough to him <laughs> and, and essentially abdicating. And the point is, this was basically a power play. This, this is basically the full-blown Eric Cartman, screw you guys, I'm going home, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but, but the point is, he knew that he had the boyars, his aristocrats, over a barrel. Um, because basically, by abdicating, he left them in a position in which they, they didn't have a spare czar lying around. The Moscow mob was very unhappy, so there was a threat of lynching. And so, essentially, they had to crawl back to him and said, please come back, we apologise terribly. And above all, what they were doing was having to admit that he would then have absolute power over them, of literally of life and death. 
in many ways, although I, I thank God Trump isn't quite going to get to that stage, I think this is also the, the tone of his message is likewise um, a warning to the Republicans that essentially you better back me because otherwise my equivalent of the Moscow mob, which is the Trump's particularly um, vitriolic and virulent own sort of supporters, will stab you just to watch you bleed. Um, so it's basically making sure that they realise that, that they are in the hands of, of, of a spiteful and vengeful man and therefore they better all vote the right way. Mark Galliotti and Somnath Batabayal will be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Yolin Goffan with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Fiat, Chrysler and Peugeot say they have agreed on a binding $50 billion merger that will pave the way for the creation of the world's fourth largest car maker. The firms are yet to decide on a new name for their company, but the tie-up is expected to radically reshape the global car industry. The Bureau of Meteorology has confirmed that Australia has just experienced its hottest day on record. Analysis suggests that yesterday's average maximum temperature was 40.9 Celsius. The sweltering heat and high winds have combined to bring dangerous bushfire conditions to the country. And finally, Montreal's traditional horse-drawn carriages, which date back to the 18th century, are likely to be absent from the city as it rings in the new year. It's because Montreal has introduced a bylaw following a number of recent incidents. For more on this story, head to monocle.com slash minute. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Somnath Batabayal and Mark Galliotti. Uh, let's move on, but persist with the theme of rumbustious populists who may have questions to answer about their dealings with Russia. Here in the United Kingdom, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is making himself comfortable in Downing Street, having extended the lease by five years at last week's general election. One obstacle he did not have to overcome during the campaign was the release of a parliamentary report into Russian interference in British politics. Johnson decided not to trouble the electorate with its contents and sat on it until the votes were counted. It has now been cleared for publication probably next month. Uh, Mark, is there any potential non-sinister reason for having postponed it? No, not really. Um, I, in, in fairness, and obviously I'm, I'm looking forward to it, it'll be my, my, you know, hopefully my, my, my Christmas present will be to get to read that. Um, Look, it's unlikely that it actually says that there was clear evidence of direct influence on the government or even probably I think they'll hedge their bets on the Brexit vote. I, I would dearly love to be able to blame Vladimir Putin for that, but alas, can't. More likely, the reason why it was suppressed was precisely because there's lots of evidence of rather embarrassing high denomination gifts being given by assorted rich Russians, some of whom may or may not in these litigious times I'd mention, be um, of, of dubious origins. Um, and that was, I think, probably regarded as ammunition that the, the Johnson campaign did not want to, to give to, to the opposition. So, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's going to really highlight the key point that we frankly already know, is that Basically, Britain is open to anyone's dodgy money as long as they also have spent some of it on a nice suit. <laughs> uh, Somnath, when we look at Russia's potential interference in the United Kingdom and, and Russia's interference elsewhere, does it strike you that Russia is, as the Soviet Union was, actually pursuing any particular ideological end or, or are they basically just trolling? I wish I could answer that question. <laughs> such, a, such a big one. Um, I think what um, I'll go along with Mark mostly on this, that we will find out that a lot of dodgy money 
is being parked. One of the, the key moments I thought uh, post-election was Boris Johnson's celebration at the, uh, and, uh, the Russian oligarch throwing a party where everyone, all his former enemies, including Mr. Cameron, was invited. He really couldn't give a damn what the public thought. And this was a classic way of doing it, you know, getting the entire north of England and the working class vote. He says, I'll celebrate with Russian dodgy, dodge money. And I, you know, it's again, it's impossible to know how much the Russian state actively is playing a part. So you don't, you, we, we can't know. But that Russian money influences elections in different countries is almost beyond doubt now that we can and mm. again as mark said that we will find out what we probably already know we'll just figure out who has given how much the 200000 pounds was given by the wife of a russian uh, former minister has already been established and boris johnson has accepted it so we know that this has happened um whether we will find out any specific kind of corruption it'll be diff- I mean, it, it will be a Christmas gift. Um, see, Mark, what I end up vaguely wondering is whether Russia is actually interfering in democratic processes in Europe and the United States or whether what they're actually doing is just kind of creating the impression that that's what they're doing and letting everybody else run with it. Are, are, are we as a Western world subject perhaps to some form of sort of meta-subversion? Well, this is getting very interesting because, yes, I think the the evidence that they actually are able to influence the outcomes of elections and so forth is pretty much lacking. Instead, what they are trying to do is use the inevitable divisiveness that arises in elections and also other political aspects Mm. and magnify that. Because what are they trying to do? They're trying to neutralise this. There is no ideology that that the Putin regime is trying to put out because it has no ideology beyond Russia is great and let us continue to steal from it with both hands. So in that respect, basically what they want is just simply to force the West to accede to Russia's claims to a great power status and basically let the Russians do what they want. So they want to divide us, to neutralise us, to distract us and to demoralise us rather than actually because they have some grand plan to reshape Western polities. OK, well, let's look finally at India, though there is, of course, a rumbustious populist angle here as well. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has enacted his Citizenship Amendment Act, which offers Indian citizenship to non-Muslims from Afghanistan, Bangladesh and Pakistan. It has not taken long for many people to spot the subtle sectarian subtext, and there have been demonstrations across India, including several in which blows and bricks have been exchanged between protesters and police. Uh, Somnath, the official line here, of course, is that this is a a selfless, heroic and noble gesture by India to uh, offer sanctuary to people being persecuted for their faith in adjacent countries. Um, Is there possibly more to it than that? Yes, possibly more. Uh, If uh, this was uh, completely a secular, non-religious uh, act of goodwill, then the Ahmadis in Pakistan would have been included. The Rohingyas in Myanmar, Myanmar would have been included. So obviously, it's not as simple. Uh, it's not an act um, without uh, very dark uh, thoughts behind it. But there are two aspects to the protest which I would want to bring out. You know, there's a celebration apparently in the West that look the. Um, Civil society in India has risen up in protest. The students have risen up in protest against uh, what they're uh, clearly saying is uh, bias towards the Muslims. But that is not the case. In most of the northeast of India, the protest on the CAB is because they do not want to give citizenship 
to the two million uh, people who have been caught under this NRC Act, the National Registers of Citizens Act, which um, the BJP had passed before the elections, which basically means they, the seven states of the Northeast in which approximately three to four million people have taken refuge post-1971, uh, they have not been legalized. And this act, the Citizenship Act, would mean that a certain proportion of it who are non-Muslims can be legalized. The Assam wants nothing to do with it. Manipur wants nothing to do with it. They do not want the Citizenship Act to go on through on this front. In the north of India, in Delhi, in Allahabad, where the protest, that protest, of course, is a protest where they're saying that Muslims have been excluded and this is a threat to the secular nature of the Indian democracy. So there are two aspects to it. One is very selfish. The other is more a civil society and student uprising. Uh, Mark, Narendra Modi has considerable form for acting and speaking as if India's Muslim people, and there are 200 million of them, are not kind of really quite full Indian citizens, or, or that their citizenship should have some sort of asterisk next to it. Uh, should this be seen in the context of that? I think so. I mean, I think what what we actually are are encountering is is this interesting divergence in different approaches to how do you deal with with minority cultures, however huge the, those those minorities may be. You have some countries which are actually trying to integrate, and others that are trying to expel. And you know, I think it is, is clear that this is this is as it were Modi taking his position at the leadership of of, of the latter camp, um, and. I mean, again, going back to just my own think thinking as a, as a Russianist, Russia also has a very large Muslim population. Mm -hmm. So I was curious this morning, I, I went and looked at the state on state affiliated newspapers to see how they were covering it. And the answer is, they're not. Um, it's, in, it's really interesting that this is clearly a story they decided was a little bit too inflammatory, a little bit too problematic, because actually Russia is very much trying to integrate its Muslim population. So, I mean, I think th th this also causes all kind of other challenges because it actually fits closer with the Chinese Uyghur model than the Russian integrative model. Uh, some Narendra Modi has not got where he is by not having some uh, measure of thumb on the pulse of Indian opinion. Is this likely to be popular? As you, as you were delineating earlier, protests against this law are coming from a couple of different angles. But his, his overt appeals to Hindu nationalism before now have generally gone over pretty well. Yes, and that's what he's banking on. Um, even though the upper house... Uh, the BJP doesn't have a majority. It has gone through without a hitch, this bill. Um, look, the world got to know about Narendra Modi with the Gujarat riots, mm. where thousands of Muslim people were killed. He came back even stronger as chief minister, and five years later after that, he, came, uh, he stood for the, was the prime minister. So obviously it has worked. I mean, he has tried it out in small scale in Gujarat. This was a model which, you know... Uh, Another Gujarati uh, followed was Mr. Gandhi. He would always try out his protests in small places in Champaran in Bihar before he would go full-scale national. So this is a model which has been extracted almost from that book in a very different way, of course, that you try it out, it works, then you bring it out into the forefront, in the national forefront. And again, as I... The anti-Muslim sentiment overrides... Uh, all of India, what happened in Kashmir and how the rest of India reacted to it was again a classic example which allowed Mr. Modi to go one step further. And look, again, India being one of the world's, the world's largest democracy, how 
quickly they shut down communication. You know, Kashmir, the moment it happened, internet blockout. Phone calls were blocked. In the Northeast, again, complete blockout of internet for hours on end, days on end. So this is a strong man being able to exert his will. But also the other thing, historically, if we keep this in mind, this has happened to Nehru, this has happened to Gandhi, uh, Mrs. Gandhi, that whenever a leader in India post-independence has got too strong, violent protests have erupted. Uh, I don't want to kind of draw a big conclusion out of this, but there's a moment of, you know, concern, which Mr. Amit Shah and Mr. Modi will have, that there is a marked resistance, at least in certain parts of India, to this bill. Somnath Batabayal and Mark Galeotti, thank you both. In a moment, we'll be hearing a little bit more about privacy or the lack thereof and big tech. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally, today, our business editor, Venetia Rainey, has a polite request for a little privacy, please. Have you heard of Max Schrems? Don't worry if you haven't. You're not alone. But he is worth knowing about. This under-the-radar Austrian law student is currently on the front line of a major legal battle with Facebook, a battle that could redefine big tech's approach to privacy and affect hundreds of thousands of companies ranging from banks to car makers. Schrems has been a privacy activist for most of his 20s. His crusade began when, aged 23, he requested his digital footprint from the social media giant for a university paper. He was shocked by what he received, everything he'd ever liked, all of his private messages, and more. Since then, he's successfully brought down a widely used international data transfer system called Safe Harbor, and also set up None of Your Business, a non-profit that makes it easier for ordinary citizens to pursue similar privacy lawsuits. Tomorrow we'll see a crucial advisory ruling on his current battle with Facebook over their use of so-called standard contractual clauses, which basically transfer personal data to non-EU countries and are worth billions of dollars to a vast range of companies. Beyond the wide-reaching business and privacy implications, there's another reason that all of this matters. In general, most of us just say yes to the T's and C's, assuming we're powerless to get a better deal. But civil society activists such as Schrems show us it doesn't need to be like that. From grappling with Brexit in the UK to protesting corruption on the streets of Lebanon, fairness and transparency are worth fighting for, no matter how powerful or intransigent your opponent may seem. That was Venetia Rainey, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bache. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.